0: I certainly appreciate an interest in your prayers tonight. I always do, whether I say it or not. I hope that you know that. Uh, I certainly need your prayers uh, daily, and certainly Mm -hmm. each and every time I make an effort to speak to you. Tonight, we're going to look in 1 Samuel chapter 25 at another event that took place in the life of David, and I might say another time of testing. It's pretty interesting to me the many different ways that we can be tested as God's people. David was tested many times through many situations, many sets of different circumstances. And he's going to face a major test here before us tonight in this chapter. Now this chapter opens up by saying, and Samuel died. Now we had not heard anything from Samuel since chapter 19. But up to this time, through the first 25 chapters of Samuel, 1 Samuel, Samuel has played a very, very important role in David's life. David lost a friend, a dear friend in Samuel. Samuel was a prophet, Samuel was a judge. Samuel's mother was Hannah. You go back and read the first two chapters of 1 Samuel, you'll find where Hannah had no children and it burdened her very heavily. And she took her case to the Lord and the Lord remembered her and enabled her to conceive and she had a son And she named him Samuel, which means ask of God. She had asked of God, and God answered and blessed her to have this child. And she gave this child, so to speak, then to the Lord in terms of committing him to his service. And Samuel became one of the most important men, one of the greatest men in Israel's history. We may not hear as much about Samuel as we do Moses or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, but I can assure you Samuel... Uh, was one of the giants in the history of Israel and David lost a great friend when Samuel died Samuel had anointed David to be the future king of Israel by the direction of the Lord Uh, he had protected David on multiple occasions and he had counseled David numerous times so when Samuel died again David lost a friend David lost an advocate and, um, and that's all it says about him right here, and Samuel died. Now in the 28th chapter, three chapters later, we're told again that Samuel died. So twice this is brought to our attention here. It's interesting to me to see that all Israel lamented, that is they mourned, the loss of Saul. Excuse me, of Samuel. Now they didn't always do what Samuel said. Samuel was a great leader. He gave them great counsel. He was a man of wisdom. He got his wisdom from God. He relayed that wisdom to the people of Israel. They didn't always obey him. didn't always follow him. But when he died, they all come out of the woodwork. When he died, they all showed up, you know, and lamented him and mourned him. And perhaps many of those who did not follow him at this time realized how important a man he was and how they should have followed him. And then they buried him. It says in his house, which means in his courtyard um, there uh, on his property where he was from. Uh, and now, this is in contrast. You read earlier where King Saul made plans ahead of time for his burial, and it was going to be far more elaborate in a very public place because he wanted people to walk by and recognize that's where he lay. But Samuel was cut out of a different bolt of cloth. Samuel was a different kind of man. Samuel was an humble man. Samuel always put the Lord first to put the Lord in front of everything else. And so this is in keeping what kind of person that he was. So Samuel died. Now, we find here where David arose and went to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel. And the man was very great. Now here, when the word great is an interesting word in the Bible. Uh, It's used quite differently than we use it. We usually use it to praise people. But the word great, as used here, just simply means uh, that he had many possessions. Uh, He was a very wealthy man. He had, I think, 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And uh, in addition to that, he had vineyards and many other things. And a man's wealth oftentimes in that day was measured by the cattle and the sheep that he had. So he was great only in this respect, you know, that he had great possessions. So this is the first thing it said about him. But then it says, um, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding, a beautiful countenance, but the man was churlish and evil in his doings. And he was of the house of Caleb. That word um, churlish means harsh. So later on we're going to find the word Nabal means fool. (laughs) All these words are going to describe this man very accurately. He was a fool. Uh, He lived up to his name. He was evil. He was harsh. No doubt this man was very difficult to live with. And so we're getting a a picture of this man here. Yes, he's wealthy. uh, And... uh, He's, he's a man that was well known, no doubt. He was also a descendant of Caleb. Now, Caleb was a giant, again, in Israel's history. Caleb was one of the two men, the spies, who went into the land of Canaan, him and Joshua, and brought back a report saying that we are well able to take the land, in contrast to the report of the 10 other spies that said we saw giants in the land, great walled cities in the land, and we be not able. Later, we find where Caleb, on his 85th birthday, reminded Joshua of the promise that when they got to the land of Canaan, there was a certain parcel of land, a certain mountain, actually, that had been promised him, and he came to claim that promise. He says, I'm just as strong today as I was 40 years ago, which means he felt at 85, he was as strong as he was at 40. Now, I doubt very seriously he was as strong physically but I think he's saying he's just as strong in the Lord at 85 as he was at 40. In God who gave him strength at 40 would give him strength at 85 to take the land. So you might say he was a very noble vine. And from this noble vine comes a very degenerated plant. That's exactly what Nabal is. You know, now, we find he's of the tribe of Judah. So was David the tribe of Judah. David and Nabal were both Jewish people. And, you know, of the tribe of Judah. So this is some of the things they had in common. Now, we're going to find where David has 600 men. And David and his men basically lived from day to day. They were in the wilderness. Uh, every single day they had to find something to eat, something to drink, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They were still being pursued by Saul. Even though the last time we saw Saul, he had left and went back home. But as you know, if you have read ahead in times past, that, that was only going to be a temporary thing. So David had had an experience, his men had an with Nabal's men in the past when they were shearing sheep. Now, they're shearing sheep now, and they did that usually twice a year. They did it in the spring, they did it in the fall. And both times it was a, a festive time uh, where people would come together for this. They would gather together. It would be a, a joyful occasion. And people was usually in good spirits and given to generosity. But see, Nabal uh, had great possessions, but he was not a generous man. We will see that. He was not a man given to generosity or hospitality. But David and his men, no doubt, could use some food, something to eat, something to drink. So at this particular time, David's going to send 10 young men and notice this, not just ten men, but ten young men. And I think these probably were very uh, good, hand-picked men, but nevertheless young men. And he sent the young men to Nabal to basically ask a favor. And he says, Now when you go, you go and you go in my name, and you go and you express peace to him, peace to his family, and peace to all that he has a connection with. There's a threefold peace that David tells those young men to carry in this message to Nabal. And you, they are to tell Nabal after they come with this salutation, after they come expressing themselves in this very mild and nice, and, and you couldn't have had a better uh, message, so to speak, from David than this one here. It's, it's a kind message. It's a message of peace. And he reminds them that there was a time when they were shearing their sheep, that David's men protected them. That David's men never took one lamb, not one. And that was a little unusual in that day with soldiers. Soldiers needed something to eat. They would take what they wanted. But David's men did not. They didn't touch one lamb, one sheep, one goat that belonged to Nabal. And on top of that, they protected them. And you'll find later on where a servant will tell Ab- Abigail they were a wall around us, a wall of protection. Now what David is asking here is a favor. He's not asking to be recompensed for that. He's not asking to be paid for that. He's just simply asking a favor of a man who is abundantly wealthy. That he might share a little of his wealth with David and his men as a pre- in appreciation for what David and his men had done for him. But this man shows the very opposite. This man displays a very unthankful attitude. He's guilty of being a person uh, that you know, shows ingratitude for what David's men, have, uh, David's men and David had done. So here's the message the men bring. Now here is Nabal's response. Verse 10, and Abel answered David's servants and said, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? Now, it starts off as if he didn't know who David was. He asked two questions. Who is David and the son of Jesse? Well, he says the son of Jesse, it betrays him. That tells me he knew who David was. And of course, everybody knew who David was. David had slain Goliath. David had won many battles against the Philistines. David's reputation was uh, had gone near and wide. Everybody knew who David was, and this time people also knew that Saul was pursuing David. David was an outcast. David was a fugitive. He knew who David was, and he knew that he indeed was the son of David. Uh, excuse me, of Jesse. He says, "There be many servants nowadays. Uh, nowadays that break away every man from his master. See, he's not going to share, and he's trying to build a case for it." Shall I then take notice this, how personal this is, how uh, arrogant this is, how ungrateful this is, uh, a man of great pride. Then I shall I take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed for my shearers and give it unto men whom I know not whence they be. The word my is used uh, uh, three times. The word I is used twice here. All the spotlight is on him. It's his flesh that he... Uh, you know, has for his shears. It's his bread, it's his water. Uh, who are these men? Who is David, the son of Jesse? As if uh, he was unaware of who this might be, making this kind of request. And now, here's something very commendable about those ten young men. They don't say a word. They don't say a single word. They've just heard their master, whom they love very much, railed upon. They've been He's been reviled. Uh, he's been insulted, and they don't say a word. You know, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, Solomon says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest I be like him. Then he says, Answer a fool according to his folly, <laughs> lest he be wise in his own conceit. So there are times you should answer a fool, and sometimes you're not to answer a fool. And Nabal is a fool. He's a fool by name, he's a fool by action. They choose to go the route of no answer. Now, Solomon also says that a soft answer turneth away wrath. So a soft answer and a no answer is the best answer that you can come up with a lot of times. That's the best answer you can give is no answer. Or if you're going to give an answer, a soft answer. These are ten young men. These are not ten seasoned men. These are ten young men, inexperienced men but I think they've been well-trained. I think they've been well-trained. And so they don't say a word. Their master has just been railed on. Their master has just been insulted. Their master has just been unacknowledged. They have just heard words from Nabal that shows that he uh, is unthankful, unappreciative. Doesn't even want to recognize the very fact that his, his uh, servants had been protected, his servants and his possessions had been protected where he had not lost a single lamb, a single sheep. If that had not been the case, he wouldn't have had as many sheep and as many goats as he did have. And that's the kind of man we're looking at right here. Now you think, so far all we've been told about Abigail is that she's a woman of wisdom and a fair countess, which means a very beautiful woman. And you wonder, well, how in the world she ever get connected with a man like that? What did she see in this man? It ain't what she saw in this man, it's what her parents saw in this man. Her parents saw in this man a wealthy man. See, marriages were arranged in that day. They didn't go through a courtship like we're accustomed to in our culture today. Her parents made this arrangement. With Nabal's parents sometime in the past. So her parents see wealth. Her parents see what they believe is Success. And a lot of people are wooed by those kind of things, impressed by those kind of things, by a person's billfold, a person's pocketbook, a person's recognition, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, without giving any thought to character, without giving any thought to what kind of person that person may be, you know, inwardly more so than outwardly. So it's not what she saw in him; it's what her parents saw in him. But the sad thing in this day and age. Is how some people make that same decision and it's not the parents making a decision for them. It's their own decision. Now Abigail's totally different than Nabal. This is Nabal's response. The men don't say a word. They don't have a response. They turn around and they go back. And they go back and they tell David. So David's young men turn their way. And went again and came and told him, that's David, all those sayings. Now, we're going to get David's response. Now, we've been studying this man for a while. And the response of David shouldn't be a great surprise to each and every one of us. And yet it should not be a surprise. Because as I say from time to time, the very best of men are men at best. And the best of men have a nature just like the worst of men do. We all have a human nature that's not good, right? We've all got a depraved human nature we have to deal with all the time. Now, how did David deal with Saul? Saul had been pursuing him for a long period of time, causing David to have to live in the wilderness when he had a house back there at Jerusalem and a palace that would be his one day. And he has lived in caves, he's lived in dens. He suffered, no doubt, the lack of food and drink and one thing and another. And most of all, he's had to live in the fear that Saul might take his life one day. But when David has an opportunity, we saw in our last message in chapter 24, when he has an opportunity and is urged on by his own men to slay Saul and end all of this, David had a forgiven spirit. David would not touch the Lord's anointed Here's a man who hadn't threatened David. Here's a man who hadn't threatened to kill David, hadn't tried to kill David. Yes, he's guilty of, being, of ingratitude. He's guilty of not being thankful. He, he's guilty of, of insulting David and railing on him. He's guilty of all of that. But David has no forgiving spirit here. When you study David's life, remember this. Every time David kind of steps out of character, so to speak, from the David that we... Love so dearly, you'll find where David doesn't pray. You'll see his actions are not preceded by prayer. That always makes a difference, doesn't it? You should always pause before you react. At least pray. <laughs> at least pray. By the time you get through praying, uh, you might react differently. Than you did if you had not prayed, or you know you had not prayed. So David doesn't pray here. David gets the report, so what's he do? David said to his men, Gird you on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And there went up after David about 400 men and 200 abode by the stuff. He's going to take two thirds of his men, 400, leave 200 where they're camped out at. He told them to all put on their sword. He's put on his sword. He's taking matters in his own hands. He hasn't asked the Lord, he hasn't prayed to the Lord. He hasn't uh, sought the Lord's counsel, the Lord's guidance, the Lord's direction here. And we find that David is overcome in his human nature. David's allowing the spirit of the old man to rule him. David's angry right here. In the New Testament book of Ephesians, Paul tells us to be ye angry and sin not. David's angry and he's about to sin. He's about to commit a very grievous sin. In the book of Proverbs, twice, we're given instructions about a person who rules and doesn't rule their own spirit. In the 16th proverb, you find where it says, A man that ruleth his spirit is better than the mighty, and of a man that taketh a city. But in Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight, it says, He that ruleth not his own spirit is like a city that's broken down and without walls. The hardest person to rule sometimes is ourselves. If you can't rule yourself, you're not going to be as strong as you would be. If you can't rule yourself, you're going to cause damage to yourself and other people. And right here, David has lost all control. Where's that control we saw when he had a chance to slay Saul? Where's it at? If you read later on in 2 Samuel chapter 16, you'll find now where David is king. He's going by a highway one day or traveling down the road. And on the side over here is a man named Shimei. And Shimei starts throwing rocks at David and cursing David and calling him a bloody man because this man was an advocate of Saul. And one of David's men said, How long are we going to allow this to happen? Give me the word. I'll go up there and I'll take his head off. They said, No, leave him alone. Just leave him alone. As they continued down, he kept running kind of like a wild man. And he was chasing after him, And he was cursing David and throwing dust on David and throwing rocks at David. David just ignored him. There are times that's just the best action to take is just ignore somebody. If you don't, the first thing you know, it escalates. You have a confrontation, it escalates. Just, just ignore them if you can. Paul writes in a Roman letter... Romans chapter 12, as much as life, as much as in you is, live peaceably with all men. Now David's got a chance to live peaceably, this man, but he doesn't choose that route. He's taking matters of his own hand. He's allowing his own human carnal nature now to take over. He is out of control. He's not ruling his spirit. He girds his own self with a sword. If remember when he went out to fight Goliath, what did Saul try to put on David? Saul tried to put a sword on David, did he not? And David put it on to begin with, but he had control of himself to the point where he said, I've not yet proved this. This is not how he fought his battles. It did not symbolize, and in in times past when David fought his battles, he looked to the Lord to fight his battles. And by taking a sword against Goliath, he would be taking matters in his own hands then. But he laid it aside, and then he went with his shepherd's bag and his sling and those five smooth stones, trusting in the Lord, and the Lord gave him a deliverance. So why is he putting on a sword now? Because he's not asking the Lord. He's not praying to the Lord. He's going to deal with things, his own manner, his own way. And it's not God's way. And it's going to take God <laughs> to overrule all of this. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife. Now this is one of Nabal's men. David sent a out of the wilderness to salute our master. And he railed on them. But the men were very good unto us, and we were not hurt. Neither missed we anything as long as we were conversing with them when we were in the fields. This man is given a true, accurate testimony. They were a wall on us by night and day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what thou wilt do, for evil is determined against our master. Uh, while those ten men didn't say anything, I imagine they had a look on their face that said a lot. I imagine they communicated in that manner. He says, for he's such a son of Baal, and a man cannot speak to him. You know what the word Baal means? It means worthless. Here's a worthless man. You said, well, Brother Lawrence, you said he was great. He had great possessions. Oh, he was worth a lot in great possessions, but he was worthless in things that really mattered the most. A worthless man, a fool, a harsh man, an evil man. And I think the scripture should tell us that's the way he was with everybody. That's the way he was with no doubt with Abigail. That's the way he was with his household. That's the way he was in his business dealings. This man says you can't talk to him. Abigail made haste. She took the warning. And you're going to find where she took many possessions with her. And she said to her servants, go on before me. Behold, i come after you. But she told not her husband Nabal. You think Nabal would approve this? Of course he would not have. And she knew that, so she didn't say anything to him about it. And she said to her servants, again, go on before me. And then she, she got on her ass and they began to travel. And behold, David came down against her and she met him. Here's one of the most important meetings David ever had in his life. As we'll find later on, David believes, believed in the providence of God here, that God sent this woman, I have no doubt about it. Now, this meeting is set up because a servant came to Abigail and told Abigail what had happened. Many times in the Bible, you will find where it is a servant that comes up with the right solution. If you read in 2 Kings, I believe it's chapter 6, you're going to find where Naaman um, was a leper, and he was a captain of the Syrian army. But there was a little maid in the house who had been taken captive, uh, a maid of Israel, And she told her mistress that if he was over there where the man of God was, he'd have a solution for it. And so he winds up going over there at the suggestion of a little maid taken in captivity. And after Elisha tells him exactly what to do, and he gets real mad and doesn't want to do it, it's his servants that tell him, if he'd have told you to do some big thing, some great thing, you'd have done that. And upon hearing that, he reversed course, changed his mind, And he dipped himself seven times in the river Jordan just like the prophet told him to do. When he did, he came out cleansed and his leprosy was gone. Here is the word of a servant as he informs Abigail. Abigail takes heed to it. Abigail makes haste. She gathers together a a, a pretty big uh, gathering of food and one thing and another with her. And she goes and as she leaves that place and heads toward David, David and his men are heading that way and they meet together. Verse 21, Now David said, Surely in vain have I kept all this fellow hath in the wilderness. This is what David's thinking right now. He is still steaming, so that nothing was missed of all that pertained unto him, and he hath requited me evil for good. Yes, he did. Well, what's David about to do now? David's about to be overcome by evil. And that's never the case. I think I mentioned in our last message, there are those who give good for good and evil for evil. And there are those who give evil for good, but we're commanded to give good for evil and not to be overcome of evil. And that's exactly what's about to happen to David. He's about to be overcome of evil right here. And when Abigail saw David, she hasted and lighted off the ass. And I want you to notice everything about Abigail here as she approaches David. She fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me, let this iniquity be. And let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak of that audience, and hear the words of thine handmaid. Let not my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Baal, even Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. She admits right off the bat, I married a fool. His name means fool, he acts a fool, he behaves like a fool. And what she's really telling David here is, he's not worth your effort. He's not worth it. And folly is with him, but I thine handmaid saw not the young men of my Lord, whom thou didst send. When you sent the ten young men, I never saw them. Now, for my Lord. Now, as you read this, if you pay close attention, you're going to find the expression, my Lord and the Lord, used repeatedly. She keeps referring to David as my Lord. In contrast, what did did Nabal do? He said, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? And he primarily just labeled him an outcast, an outlaw, one thing or another. But Abigail addresses him as her Lord, but she also brings in the Lord. If you count them up, you're going to find at least ten times she addressed David as her Lord, and then at least nine times she refers to the Lord, who's Lord of all lords. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord liveth, as thy soul liveth, seeing the Lord Notice, seeing the Lord hath withholden thee from coming to shed blood and from avenging thyself with thine own hand, now let thine enemies and they that seek evil to my Lord be as Nabal. She said, the Lord has intervened here. The Lord has withholding thee from coming to shed blood. And now this blessing which thine handmaid had brought unto my Lord, let it even be given unto the young men that follow my Lord." I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fight the battles of thee, Lord, and evil hath not been found in thee all thy day. She says, up to this point right here, there's been no evil found in you. Everything you've done has been for the welfare of the nation of Israel. Everything you've done has been in accordance to God's law Everything you've done has been a blessing on the King Saul and all of Israel up to this time. But see, David is about to do something very, very foolish. David is about to commit a very serious crime. David is about to commit a very grievous sin. He's going down there to kill Nabal and everybody associated with him. That's his goal. But Abigail intercedes, Abigail intervenes. She says, the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. She says, the day is coming when my Lord is going to make you a sure house, a dynasty, so to speak. You'll have a solid kingdom. You'll have a, a solid reign as king. That's what she's telling him. This woman's words are words of faith and words of knowledge and words of understanding and words of truth. This is a very, very wise woman. Yet a man is risen to pursue thee. She's talking about Saul and to seek thy soul. But the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. Notice that expression. Shall be found in the bundle of life. That's a beautiful expression. She's just simply saying something David said uh, uh, years after this when he says, My times are in thy hand, O Lord. The bundle of life. It's just an expression talking about the blessings of life how God had been with David David's a man after God's own heart how God had blessed him many many times numerous times and Abigail's well aware of all of this and bringing it to David's attention and she says the souls of thine enemies them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling isn't that interesting David's most famous battle where he defeated Goliath involved what a sling he took a sling and one of five smooth stones, and slung that stone, it met the forehead of the giant, and slew him. And she says exactly what the Lord's going to do, David. The Lord um, and the souls of thine enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. It shall come to pass when the Lord shall have done to my Lord according to all the good that has spoken concerning thee, and shall have appointed thee ruler over all Israel, that there shall be no grief unto thee, nor offense of heart unto my Lord, either that thou hast shed blood causeless or that my Lord hath avenged himself. She says, by you not doing this, you will not avenge yourself and you will not be guilty of shedding blood causeless. And then she says, remember thine handmaid. And David said to Abigail, "Now here's David's response. What will it be? Will he say, get out of my way? Well, he says, you're slowing me down. You're hindering me. I don't care what you say. I'm going down there, and I'm taking Abel's life. Will that be his language? Will that be his response? No, it will not be. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me. He praises God for God's providence. He praises God for sending Abigail. He realizes Abigail is a blessing, and God sent her. And blessed be thy advice. He said your advice is good. He praises that. And blessed be thou which has kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with mine own hand. Now, in Romans chapter 12, we mentioned this in our last message, it applies here as well. I think it's one of the greatest examples in the Bible of what would have happened if David had avenged himself, but what did happen is we'll see shortly when he put it back in God's hand and God took care of the situation. When you go to Romans chapter 12, he says, avenge not yourselves. He says, for vengeance belongs unto me. Thus saith the Lord, I will repay. If your enemy hunger, you feed him. If he thirsts, you give him something to drink. For in so doing, you reap fires of coal upon his head. Abigail has been sent by God to turn David around. Abigail is going to do something (laughs) that no soldier was ever able to do to David. She's going to turn David around. She's going to stop David and turn David around with her words. For in very deed as the Lord God of Israel liveth, which hath kept me back from turning, from hurting thee, except thou hast hasted and come to meet me, surely there had not been left unto Nabal any of his household. So David received of her hand he, he received the present she brought, and the food, and the provisions that she brought him, and said unto her, Go up in peace to thine house, see I've hearkened to thy voice, and have accepted thy person notice how he ends this he says peace go up in peace to thine house it just came to me real strong late this afternoon when I was meditating some on this of the importance of the blessing of peace of peace one of the names of the Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah 9 6 is the prince of peace Christ came to establish peace between God the Father and His elect. He came to remove sin out of the way so there could be peace between you and God, eternally speaking. He's referred to numerous times in the Bible as the God of peace. When the angels came down and spoke unto the shepherds, what did they say? Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. When Simeon held the Lord in Jesus Christ, a little babe, after that experience, what did he say? He said, now let thy servant depart in peace. In Luke chapter 7, the woman who came behind the Lord weeping, confessing her sins. The Lord forgave her for her sins. What did he tell her at the end? He says, our faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. In Luke chapter 8, the woman had disease, the issue of blood for 12 years. The Lord healed her. And what did he tell her in the end? He says, again, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. After the Lord's resurrection, he met with his disciples behind closed doors. What's the first word he spoke to them? Peace be unto you. He met the second time, a week later. What did he say? Peace be unto you. What a blessing it is in peace. As Paul wrote all his church letters, in the opening verse of all his church letters, all nine of them, he addressed the church in this way, mercy and peace be unto you. His three letters to Timothy and Titus have the same words except he puts mercy in between. Mercy, I mean, mercy, mercy, grace and peace to the churches. And that's grace and mercy and peace be unto you. When he still the storm of the disciples in that ship on the sea, what did he say to the storm? Peace, be still. This blessing of peace, what would you take for it? What would you take for it if you could? The blessing of peace to have a a peaceful mind to sleep at night, to rise with a peaceful uh, uh, mind to start the day. A peace that passeth all understanding. That's what he says in Philippians chapter 4. Moderation be made unto all men. He goes on to tell us how we be anxious for nothing, but all things given thanks unto God with supplication and and prayers, etc. He says and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. He says, shall keep your mind in hearts. There's where we fight the battles, right in here, right in here. And we need the peace of God that passeth all understanding to keep that mind and to keep that heart. What about the blessing of peace tonight? Have you received that blessing? Is that a blessing you covet? Is that a blessing you asked for, the blessing of peace? What's the gospel called? Over there in Ephesians 6, we're told to put on the whole armor of God, have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is about the prince of peace. The gospel of peace is about the peace that Jesus Christ obtained between God the Father and all his elect family when he put away all their sins. As far as the east is from the west, peace was established, and that peace will never be disturbed again. I can assure you that. Oh, what peace it comes to my heart and my soul when I read about the blessings of the Lord and what the Lord has done for me. And David, the last thing he tells this woman, Abigail, is to go in peace. Abigail returns back home. You know what she finds when she comes back home? She finds a man that's drunk. She finds this foolish man, this fool, Nabal, and he's having a great feast. All he cares about is his flesh and his, his bread and his water and his provisions. He doesn't know at this point how close he has come to dying. He doesn't know anything that's taken place. She does the wise thing. She doesn't speak to him while he's drunk. She waits till the next morning when he's sobered up. Knows the language. But it came to pass in the morning when the wine was gone out of Nabal and his wife had told him these things and his heart died within him and became as a stone. Now, most people think that simply means he had a stroke. When he heard the news, what she had done, and how close he had come to having david and 400 men, and that would have been a mismatch for the ages. They would have slaughtered Nabal and his household. When he got that report, he basically became lifeless. And he stayed in that condition for 10 days. Verse 38, it came to pass after 10 days after that the Lord smote Nabal. And he died. This chapter opens up with the death of Samuel. It's going to end with the death of Nabal. What would have happened if David had not been stopped by Abigail? What would have happened if God had not sent Abigail and been stopped by Abigail? David would have tarnished greatly his character, his reputation. He would have committed a great sin. He would have taken innocent lives. He wasn't just coming down there to take care of Nabal. He was coming to take care of Nabal and all the other males down there in the household. He'd been guilty of a great sin in the sight of God. And yet, God sent Abigail, and Abigail stopped him by the blessings of the Lord. And you know how many people died? One. Who died? Nabal. No other man died. No other person died. Left up to David, they'd all been dead. God took care of the situation perfectly, didn't He? He took care of it perfectly. This man that was a fool, I tell you one thing this man was not. This man was not a hypocrite. He wasn't. He was just as bad on the outside as he was on the inside. Everything about this man on the inside, how evil he was, it came out on the outside. He was not a hypocrite. (laughs) But he was a fool. He lived a fool. He died a fool. Now listen to David's language. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord. He's praising God again. That he had pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and have kept his servant from evil. David admits, if I had not been restrained by the Lord, what I was going to do would have been evil. For the Lord had turned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. And David sent in communion with Abigail to take her to him to wife. David liberated Abigail. I mean, God liberated Abigail. Nabal's dead. Abigail is free. She now is going to become the wife of David. There's no hesitation. When David asks her to marry her, there's no hesitation. Now remember, David's not in his palace. He's not wearing that crown upon his head as the king of Israel at this point. He's still in the wilderness. He's still suffering uh, from that type of life. He still has hardships. She's willing to become a servant and marry him and be his bride, his wife, and endure the hardships that he's enduring right along beside him. Now, when you take on the uh, role of discipleship, that's what you're doing. In a manifest way, you marry the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism and discipleship, and you're saying, I'm willing to endure the hardships and come along and live in a Christian life. Our Lord lived a tough life. Our Lord lived a life in which he was despised and rejected the man. Uh, he was despised and rejected a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. If we live godly as we ought to live godly in this world, Paul says, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. She's willing to experience that to be by David's side. She's a wealthy woman. She's, she's a wealthy woman. She has all the, all the things that Nabal had are hers. She's a very wealthy woman, but she chooses. Now notice this language in closing. And when the servants of David were come to Abigail, to Carmel, they spake unto her, saying, David sent us unto thee to take thee to him to wife. And she arose and bowed herself on her face to the earth and said, Behold, let thine handmaid be a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hasty and arose and rode upon an ass with five damsels of hers. They went after her, and she went after the messengers of David, and became his wife. Of this picture of Abigail, in addition to things we've already said, she was a woman of understanding. She was a woman of wisdom. She was a woman of faith and a woman of courage. It took courage to do what she did. To meet a man she knew was angry, coming down with 400 men, and she was willing to meet him and to speak boldly unto him. But perhaps the greatest thing about Abigail is she was totally clothed with humility. Totally clothed with humility. As Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and due season or due time he shall exalt thee. Abigail's the kind of woman that I think every woman ought to want to be like. Follow her pattern. Read, go back and read this again. If you read it before you came tonight, go back home. If you didn't, go back home either way. Read it again. And pay attention to her actions and her words and how effective they were. And they were effective because God sent her. Now, how many times in your life has God sent somebody into your life? You know, Rico, my good friend, that I hope you get to see more of, he's been in Italy for the last several weeks. He's told me several times, he said, Brother Ron, <laughs> Brother Ron, he said, I was praying to God that he had sent somebody in my life and he sent you. And um, I, I hope that's true. And I, I believe it's true. I think I have already an ample amount of evidence to that, to that effect. And so I, I hope you get to see a lot more of him sometime in the very near future. But I want you to pay attention. And look back in your life tonight. This would be a good thing for you to do, reflect in your life. How many people can you come up with that you really believe that God sent that person into your life?